Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Avi Cooper, and I'm once again joined by Tony Brew and Hannah Abrams. Hello. How, how are you guys doing? Hey, not bad. All right. So before we get to the show, is there anything recently that you've come across you wanted to share? I know I brought something tonight to to mention, um, but anything that you guys want to discuss or should I just dive right Tell in? Tell us about it. So yeah, Go for it. we want to hear from I, you. So I was going to plug Khan Academy and both for adults and kids. So I don't know if you have you guys ever used Khan Academy before? I've definitely watched their videos, their medical videos. Yeah. So Khan Academy, you know, is it's free and they have a great app. The videos are really kind of conducive to learning. You know, they're all like five to 10 minutes. And like, I've been watching stuff on like ancient Mesopotamian history and just stuff that's like, (laughs) you know, hard to get digestible content on, uh, but it is quite digestible. And um, I have a four-year-old son who's homeschooling right now. And so, and they have a kid's app that is really kind of all in one. Um, So I think for parents out there who are looking for resources for their kids at home, reading, um, writing, uh, math, like you know, behavioral stuff into like how to wait in line. Like, I don't know. There's like, there's a lot of good stuff in there. So, uh, yeah, I would plug that today. We are not sponsored. Yeah. I was going to say (laughs) the Khan Academy. (laughs) So, so today's show is the next in a series on, on intern questions that we're doing. And Hannah's going to walk us through a question that came up for her in the first part of her intern year. Yeah. So somehow I'm a third of the way through my intern year and I still seem to have a whole lot of questions. Normally, (laughs) normally when I'm looking into a question for the show, we've sort of talked about this before. I want to have a pretty clear answer if we're going to be able to share it. But this, this series is sort of all about the dead ends and the random curiosity questions that just come up in the average day as an internal medicine intern, <laughs> which has led to some sort of interesting pathways. So the question for tonight is going to be, why do septic pulmonary emboli occur in the periphery and bases of the lungs? So without disclosing anything about obviously any specific patients, was, was there a, an encounter or something that prompted you to think about this? Because there's a lot of questions that interns <laughs> are presented with. <laughs> there are. Yeah, this one stuck in my mind um, because our fellow pointed it out as a um, sort of after we were reviewing a patient's CT on rounds. And she pointed out, like, why do you think that this is, is in the periphery of the lung? Do you guys know? And had given us sort of her hypotheses based on it. Um, and I just thought it was such an interesting teaching point that I wanted to look up more and see what the evidence was behind it. Very cool. So is there something specific about what the fellow told you that ended up bringing true when you looked it up yourself? Or like, was she on the right track? <laughs> she was. She was. Okay. So, uh, and I'll say, first of all, this is something that doesn't have a ton of data behind it because septic pulmonary emboli are not that common. Um, and they're not that well studied uh, because you sort of need pathology in order to understand them. And very often they occur in patients who are very sick from other causes. So they're not the primary sort of focus of investigation. But I can start off by explaining to you guys what a septic pulmonary embolism is. And the first thing that you have to understand to understand what a septic pulmonary embolism is, is why it's different from a normal or bland pulmonary embolism. So it's a clot that is made up of microorganisms in a fibrin matrix. So bacteria floating around in a little fibrin matrix. And it usually embolizes off of like an infectious nidus. So most commonly tricuspid valve endocarditis. And then it lodges inside the pulmonary vasculature. 
we see it usually on a CT of the chest like we saw during rounds that day as basically the reaction and infarction that happens around one of these infected clots that lodges in the pulmonary vasculature. So the kind of most common CT findings are wedge-shaped peripheral lesions. They often abut the pleura. Sometimes they have a feeding vessel. Sometimes they cavitate. And they're very often nodular. So this, again, sounds different than your usual bland pulmonary infarct, where it sounds like here we're seeing the kind of downstream consequences of the embolus as opposed to the embolus itself. Like when I get a CTA to look for a normal bland PE, I just see the PE. I don't necessarily see the infarct. Here we're seeing the consequences of the infarct. Is, is that right? Exactly, yeah. So this is sort of the fascinating thing about septic pulmonary emboli is like, why do they form nodules? Why don't, and not to offend okay. normal pulmonary emboli <laughs> by calling them bland, but we will for the sake of discussion here. Why don't bland pulmonary emboli cause nodules and cavitation? Right. Um, and that's sort of the fascinating thing about these clots that I never really thought about twice before this fellow brought it up on rounds. So what's different about them? Like why, why do they go to specific places as compared to say, you know, like you said, a bland pulmonary embolus? Bland, completely boring <laughs> pulmonary embolus. <laughs> an, an unflavored pulmonary uh, yeah, so, embolus. <laughs> an uninspired pulmonary embolus. Yeah. Okay. So a couple things are different about them. First, think about them flicking off of an infected nidus and again, usually tricuspid valve endocarditis. So they're usually much smaller. And so they can go essentially out into the much more peripheral vasculature. So that's one reason for them to be more peripheral. Uh, The second component is that they are infected. Uh, And so they cause a lot of local infection and cavitation around them. So like if you, for example, compare a sub-subsegmental PE to a really small septic pulmonary embolus, even a sub-subsegmental PE isn't going to form nodules and cavitation. And so there's, there's two big sort of components that are hypothesized, although unfortunately don't have great data to sort of pathophysiologically prove why these nodules might look different. The first one is what I just said, that they are smaller nodules, so they're going further out. And larger bland pulmonary emboli that we would normally think about, like, for example, uh, a large segmental pulmonary embolus. If you remember sort of the pulmonary vasculature, I love explaining pulmonary vasculature to a pulmonology (laughs) attending, but... Like thinking about the pulmonary vasculature, normally you have bronchial circulation that would then go around. And so you wouldn't necessarily get a distal infarction. But that doesn't entirely explain, for example, even when people have very large septic pulmonary emboli from extreme tricuspid valve endocarditis, they still can have some pretty significant parenchymal infarction and cavitation. And so the other component is this essentially reactive stroma that forms around this infected clot. And again, it's this sort of idea that we're seeing a lot more of the reaction to the clot than necessarily the effect of the clot itself. That's really interesting. And um, my suspicion would be that um, there's a lot of reasons why these patients would be more likely to have fever, but you know, they're, they're infected, of course. But this seems like just a more inflammatory condition than your garden variety PE. And, and so that's going to manifest both clinically and then, like from what you're saying, radiographically as well. Does that seem right? Yeah, and it's you know it's it's such an interesting thing. The other two like sorts of clots that you might think about, do they do the same thing in a non-septic setting? Would be Marantic endocarditis and Libman-Sachs endocarditis, which are both two types of endocarditis. Um, 
in which you might potentially see small embolization. And unfortunately, there's just like really not great data about it. But in all of these cases, this is a, a relatively sick patient who has a reason to be forming these emboli and reason to be embolizing into the lungs and sort of challenging to separate out what is the, the consequence of the overall state versus the specific septic pulmonary embolus. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, so one particularly interesting case that sort of demonstrates this point of how do we separate the effect of the size of the clot from and sort of the way that it's spreading peripherally um, to the effect from the effect of the local inflammation and infarction is um, really unfortunately a, a case that is a pathology case of a post of an autopsied lung. Um, in someone who had a sudden cardiac death from a large uh, septic pulmonary embolus that was very large and obstructing the entire left PA, sorry, the left pulmonary artery, but then had also had, prior to that, been showering very much smaller septic pulmonary emboli into the peripheral microvasculature of the lung. So you were able to see the, the consequences of the peripheral smaller infarcts, as well as the very large um, pulmonary artery embolus. And the sort of interesting thing is that there wasn't as much cavitation around it, although, of course, like the effect of time is sort of difficult to tease out here because the large embolus resulted in sudden death, Um, but that the smaller emboli more peripherally did have more infarction around them. My guess is you didn't have a chance to look into like a corollary on this, but if you think about like left-sided endocarditis... Yeah, and then, you know, the comparator of, like, um, uh, embolus from atrial fibrillation, right? So your your bland embolus to the brain and your septic emboli to the brain. I mean, my guess is that yeah. it's a similar story where the manifestations, you know, intracerebrally are going to be, um, you know, more inflammatory and, and, and sort of it's going to look a little bit different, but not exactly what you're talking about. But mm. did you come across anything like that or did you did that sort of come up when you were talking about this with the fellow? No, you know, although, like, think of terrifying things to think about occurring in your patient. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> sort of the call in turn. Um, um, only in my nightmares. But um, but it does it does come up with mycotic aneurysm. Yeah. I mean, I think you... They're, they're, oh, sure. That, that, yeah. that would probably be the correlate for a left-sided endocarditis septic yeah, process, you know. And, and there, what's interesting when you think about the size of the vessel is, I believe, and I may be misremembering... Um, some of the mycotic aneurysms occur because of involvement of the vasovasorum, and it's actually the vasovasorum and the small vessels feed that are the feeders to the large vessels that lead to the problem. And so, again, this idea of showering small emboli that are infected um, being the problem, and it sounds like often the problem with septic emboli to the lung, I think you see a similar pattern for mycotic aneurysms. Does that, that sound at all familiar to either of you guys? Yeah, it, it, it does. And I, I think it might explain kind of the, the, the peripheral kind of predilection, like, like Hannah, like you were talking about, obviously there's a size component, you know, these are small emboli that are able to travel farther out into the lung, but you know, you, you have to remember, you know, you see that wedge shaped infarction, right? So there's arborization that happens in terms of the, the blood vessels and they thin out as you get farther out. And I think the circulation gets more um, precarious um, and more susceptible to infarction. And then the other really interesting sort of hypothesis that was brought forward by the the fellow who was teaching us, who I should probably shout out at this point. So thank you, Hilary Zetlin, for teaching on rounds. Um, but was why is why does this happen in the bases of the lungs? Yeah. Uh, 
which is a sort of a more interesting question that does not really have, and sort of none of this has amazing proof data. There is prevalence data that shows that about 60% of patients who have um, septic pulmonary emboli have a basal or predominant pattern. And the interesting hypothesis that that my fellow put forward was that it may be because there's greater cue, like thinking about your we- like the west zones of the lungs, there's greater flow or cue to the bases of the lungs, and so therefore any flow dependent process, like a moving, like movement of a small clot, should predominate at the bases of the lungs. I don't, what do you guys think? I I wasn't able to find a ton of data to back it up, but it would seem intuitive. I, I remember a few months ago hearing which something that I think ended up being heretical, but it was the idea that bats get tuberculosis in the apices because they sleep upside down. And so they they have preferential <laughs> flow to their apices. It may not have been tuberculosis because tuberculosis, I think, typically does go to the apices. There was something about like flow, but because they sleep upside down, that flow is more likely to appear in the, the, the upper zones of their lungs. I think it has face validity, and I do. I think that that makes sense. And certainly we see that with other kind of bloodborne processes like alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, right, where you get the emphysema in the, the, the bases of the lung because of that exact reason, because it's it's a bloodborne problem. So mm-hmm. I think that makes sense to me at least. Seems not unreasonable, as as one says on rounds. So, Hanny, do you have any take-home points for, for this topic? Yeah. Well, so there's one last super cool hypothesis generating, not at all um, sort of rigorously studied, but fascinating thing about septic pulmonary emboli that I wanted to tell you guys about, um, which is one study that looked at that they compared the CT, the CT features of septic pulmonary emboli that were associated with gram positive versus gram negative organisms. And I thought this was just like the coolest thing. So the gram positive organism associated clots were more likely to be bigger they were more likely to cavitate, and they were more likely to have wedge-shaped infarcts. And then the gram-negative-associated septic pulmonary emboli were more likely to be smaller, and they were better marcated, and they were associated with more hemorrhage, which is like classically seen on CT as this halo sign. So they hypothesized with not a ton necessarily of data behind it or subsequent studies to prove this concept, but that it may be because of the sort of vascular and hemorrhage-inducing effect of endotoxin in gram-negative septic emboli. Um, So I thought that that was like the coolest possible thing to think about pathophysiologically. What is the difference between gram-positive and gram-negative organisms and the the immune response to them that would induce these different imaging characteristics in the the SPs? That's interesting. That is cool. cool. I guess one other thing that comes to mind for me, I know some gram-positive organisms tend to make like hyaluronidase and like kind of release enzymes that digest tissue around them. So I don't know if that also could make it more likely to cavitate. Yeah, and coagulase positive Staph aureus makes a coagulase, which create I think is part of its virulence factor protects it from the immune system by creating this sort of um, clot. I don't know if it's actually a formal clot around it. So I think some of this does make a bit of sense. Yeah, completely wild. Someone please study this. I I don't know how you would. Um, but I would love to see more data on this, and I think it's completely fascinating. Do you have any take-on points from this intern question that you they answered? Yeah, one, never to forget my west zones of the lung and to always remember sort of thinking about VQ in different regions of the lung and how that can affect things. And then two, to remember sort of the pathophysiology of why the clot is occurring in thinking about what the imaging findings of it are. But 
mostly just like, wow, isn't it really cool that the sort of inflammatory response to different types of bacteria could actually cause something that you could so readily see and sort of pick out and you know, certainly next time I'm going to try that the read is that if there's a septic pulmonary embolus, I'm going to try and take a look and see if it looks more gram positive or gram negative. Although <laughs> I don't know that I'll be able to necessarily uh, pick that out. Yeah, that was a really cool plural. I think maybe we could have like hypothesized our way to it, but um, like hearing it and then thinking, okay, why might that be? Um, it it kind of ties a lot of this together. Um. I don't know, Avi, any, anything you want to add in closing before we end the episode? No, I mean, I think the the one interesting thing that I kind of was thinking about is that inhaled phenomenon can look the same way too because the blood vessels travel with the, you know, the bronchioles, so the bronchovascular bundle. So like histo, for example, like acute pulmonary histoplasmosis can give the nodular appearance that looks like it's mm-hmm. tracking along the blood vessels and was dropped there by tricuspid endocarditis. But um, so I think that's just an interesting other, other differential to keep in mind when you're looking at your chest CTs in this situation. Absolutely. As I'm sitting there opining on whether it might be gram positive, gram negative or fungal. Um. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, well, well, that wraps up this episode of The Curious Clinicians. Uh, thanks, as always, for joining us. Uh, until next time, I've been Tony Brew. I'm Hannah Abrams. And I'm Avi Cooper. You can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have the show notes for each episode delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to the episode. For more information, please visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash CuriousClinicians for more information. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been The Curious clinicians. Bye.